Um, so I'm delighted to share this panel. Um, those of you who are lucky enough to have been at the, the dinner last night uh, know that we were given a great sort of genealogy of the UN and peace building from, from Lord Malcolm Brown. And at the first plenary of this, this conference, we have a really fantastic combination of experience with the UN over the years, uh, the current state of UN activities and thinking about the future of where the UN is going, uh, and then one of the leading scholars uh, of the UN over the years. So to just introduce the thinkers briefly, uh, I can't do them justice uh, in terms of giving them the amount of time because their, uh, their experience is so vast. But we have Edward Mortifer, who's going to be speaking on peace in the UN at 70, which is the theme of the conference, generally speaking. Uh, amongst the various roles that he held at the UN, uh, he was the Director of Communications for UNSG Kofi Annan. Uh, he's a fellow of all souls, President of the British Association of Former UN Civil Servants. Uh, he serves as an advisory board member for the Institute of Historical uh, Justice and Reconciliation. Uh, and before his time at the UN, he had a career as a journalist uh, and writer for Planet Times. Second speaker will be uh, Hilda Johnson, who will be speaking on UN protection of civilians, with a special emphasis uh, on South Sudan. Um, and that emphasis comes out of her experience recently as kind of the mission uh, of UN mission in the Republic of South Sudan between 2011 and 2014. Uh, she's currently a member of the UN high-level panel on the review of peace operations, looking at how uh, and why the UN might reform and restructure uh, its peace operations moving forward. She's previously held the position of Deputy Executive Director of UNICEF, uh, former Minister of International Development of Norway, uh, and her work on peace building has taken her right around the world, Horn of Africa, Sudan, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, Timor-Leste, Guatemala, and the Great Lakes. The discussant for our panel uh, will be uh, Professor Richard Kaplan uh, from the Department of International Relations and, and, and Politics here at Oxford. He's also an official fellow of Lenica College. Um, Richard's published far and wide on, on UN peace building, and I, I can't sort of give you the, the full bibliography here, but to suggest that his most recent uh, book was uh, titled Exit Strategies, uh, looking at how peace building missions come to an end. Uh, that was published in 2012 with Oxford University Press. Uh, and Rich uh, is currently working on a project that is examining uh, how the UN tries to measure um, peace-building missions and the success and efficacy of efforts to build peace. Um, and so with that as an introduction, I'd like to invite uh, Edward Mortimer uh, to be the first speaker. Thank you very much. <coughs> um, well, those of you who heard Mark Malik Brown last night will know that he's quite a hard act to follow, um, particularly as I think the theme is the same. Um, I thought actually his take was a little bit pessimistic. He, I mean, he was drawing on his humanitarian experience and he was sort of basically saying, well, the UN as an international security organization is a nice idea. Um, we perhaps overreached ourselves uh, after the end of the Cold War, and now we're back to normal when the Security Council will be deadlocked. Um, but we humanitarians can get on with a lot of useful work under the radar. Um, I'm not quite resigned to that interpretation of the UN's mission, and I think that it has more to do, and has had more to do, with world peace 
in the last 70 years than that might suggest. Um, um, one would always like to start by saying that every school child knows. Um, one has learned, unfortunately, that that's very seldom true uh, in the present state of our education system. But quite a lot of school children, and certainly a large number of adults, I think probably are familiar with the first words of the UN Charter. We, the peoples of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. <clears throat> um, and I think actually that is the standard by which the UN will always be judged. Uh, <clears throat> has it lived up to that determination of its founders? And I think that raises two questions, that deconstructs, if you like, into two questions. Um, first of all, have succeeding generations been saved from that scourge? And secondly, insofar as they have, was that the UN's achievement? Well, the first answer, I mean, many people probably immediately say, obviously not. Um, you know, there are still, unfortunately, quite a lot of wars going on in the world. Um, thousands of human beings continue to die in armed conflicts around the world every year. Many more are maimed, traumatized, and forced to flee their homes. <clears throat> But remember the scale and the nature of the scourge that the founders were talking about. The scourge of war, they went on, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind. They were speaking or writing as the survivors of two world wars in which many millions had perished and people from almost every part of the world had fought. We, who have, I would say, been fortunate enough to live in the succeeding 70-year period, must indeed count ourselves fortunate that we have been spared from wars on that scale, especially when we remember that a third world war would almost certainly have involved the use of nuclear weapons, whose existence cannot have been suspected by those who were drafting the UN Charter in San Francisco because it was a very well-kept secret until the moment some weeks after the Charter was signed when nuclear weapon was first used. <clears throat> and incidentally, I think that makes nonsense of the claim you often hear nowadays in this country that Britain needs to, retain a to remain a nuclear power to justify its status as a permanent member of the UN Security Council. Whatever the arguments for or against are retaining that status, we recorded it at a time when there were no known nuclear powers and only one state that was even close to becoming one. <clears throat> and nothing could be more absurd or more dangerous today than to imply that any country that develops such weapons is thereby entitled to that status. The wars which had brought untold sorrow to mankind in the first half of the 20th century were wars fought between very powerful, heavily armed and well-organised states, deploying vast regular armies and navies and, in the Second World War, air forces. Since 1945, there have been some wars of that type, notably in the Middle East, but they have remained local and generally been of short duration, the most notable exception being the Iran-Iraq War of 1980-88. But the typical wars of the late 20th and early 21st century have been of a quite different type, 
generally starting within the borders of a state, even if, on many occasions, external powers have later intervened. The issue has usually not been which of the belligerents should control a given territory, but either what kind of regime could, should control a state, or whether an ethnic minority should remain within a state or break away, taking a slice of territory with it. Many of those conflicts are byproducts of anti-colonial struggles or decolonization processes. Frequently, the losing side or sides blame an external power for its intervention or non-intervention. And increasingly, they have resorted to terrorism in an attempt to influence the policies of external powers or sometimes simply to gain publicity and support for their cause from compatriots or co-religionists who share their sense of victimhood. But the vast majority of their victims are within the country or region where they are based. The world as a whole may be alarmed from time to time, but by and large is not directly affected. <clears throat> I don't suggest that this is a happy state of affairs, but it is very different from the wars that the UN's founders were <clears throat> mainly worried about. So, my second question. If we have been spared from wars on the scale of the early 20th century, how far, if at all, do we have the UN to thank for that? Some would say not at all. The alliance of powers which won the Second World War and which was supposed to form the backbone of the United Nations fell apart almost as soon as the Charter came into force. For 50 years, the Security Council was scarcely ever able to take action under Chapter 7, the Enforcement Chapter, because of the deep division and hostility between the Council's permanent members, each of them wielding a veto. As is well known, the main exception, the UN's intervention in Korea in 1950, was made possible only by a Soviet miscalculation never to be repeated. If the Cold War never became a hot one, in the sense of direct hostilities between the superpowers, that is generally credited to the very existence of nuclear weapons, the balance of terror which made the risks for both sides too high to be worth taking. On at least one occasion, however, the Cuba Missile Crisis of 1962, the balance very nearly broke down with potentially disastrous consequences for humanity. The role played by UN Secretary General U Thant in helping to avert this catastrophe has been too little remembered, even though both Kennedy and Khrushchev acknowledged it in writing at the time. This was a striking example of the Secretary General using his good offices to prevent conflict. But there have been many other instances, albeit generally in less dramatic circumstances, and usually with even less publicity. To take a more recent example, very few people are aware, probably even in the countries directly concerned, of the many hours of patient negotiation undertaken by Kofi Annan over several years to avert conflict between Nigeria and Cameroon over the Bokassi Peninsula. I wonder how many people even in this audience have actually heard of the Bokassi Peninsula. But that illustrates two well-known problems about prevention. First, it's impossible to prove. You can never know for certain that something which did not occur would have occurred if a specific preventive action had not been taken. One might always be in the situation of the man who asked why he kept throwing pieces of newspaper out of a railway carriage 
replied to keep the elephants away, and then, when told that there were no elephants, added triumphantly, you see, it works. <laughs> I once wanted to put that in a speech by Kofi Annan, and Mark Mallet Brown took it out. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, when prevention does work, it seldom makes a story. We all know about the wars that have happened, and which, therefore, the UN must have failed to prevent. But the wars which did not happen, perhaps because the UN did play a part in preventing them, seldom receive any publicity, and anyway, are soon forgotten. The UN is somewhat in the situation of Marshal Joffre, who said after the Battle of the Marne in 1914, je ne sais pas qui l'a gagné, mais je sais bien qui l'aurait perdu. I don't know who won it, but I know very well who would have lost it. The UN, of course, is often derided as a mere talking shop. But that is not always such a bad thing to be. As Churchill said, jaw-jaw is better than war-war. Even if the Security Council is not always able to take such swift and decisive action as one might wish, the fact that states have recourse to it and to the General Assembly as a place to state their grievances and appeal to that elusive but much-invoked body, the international community, may sometimes function as a safety valve, an alternative to far more destructive and self-destructive <coughs> forces of action, um, giving at least a breathing space for diplomacy to work and tempers to cool. And it is also a place where countries can meet, sometimes quite unobtrusively, even when normal diplomatic relations have been broken off. That can happen at any time at the level of ambassadors, but also from time to time at higher levels on the fringes of multilateral gatherings. Why else would so many foreign ministers, and indeed heads of state and government, fly to New York each September for the general debate, which in itself is a tedious and apparently pointless ritual with countries succeeding each other at the podium to make formal statements of their general foreign policy concerns? Everyone knows that the real point is not what you say in the chamber, but the private side meetings you can have with counterparts from one or more other countries in which there can be real discussion and the chances of peace could be improved. And, of course, much of this diplomacy goes beyond pure interstate relations. The UN may not have been able to prevent many civil wars from breaking out, but it certainly can act as a forum where ways of ending them are discussed. Increasingly, groups or entities that are not formally recognised as states do find their way to New York and do take part, directly or through intermediaries, in negotiations involving the governments with which they are in conflict. In some cases, they are even able to address the Security Council. Hilda will certainly remember that South Sudan did that at foreign minister level some months before it was officially recognised as an independent state and admitted to UN membership. And that was the culmination of a very long process in which the UN had played a very significant part, notably by deploying a peacekeeping mission. The famous prohibition in Article 2.7 of the Charter against intervention in matters which are essentially within the jurisdiction of any state has long been honoured far more in the breach than in the observance. The tragedy is that in most cases states only come to accept the need for such intervention after conflict has broken out and devastated much of their country. Vast resources then have to be deployed 
in the almost impossible task of rebuilding peace in a shattered society and holding it back from plunging into renewed conflict when it might have been much easier and cheaper for skilled mediators to avert the conflict in the first place if only they had been given access and people in power had been willing to listen to them. For 20 years or more now, this has been the big topic in New York, within the Secretariat and also in discussions with member states. How can the UN move from a culture of reaction to a culture of prevention? How can it know enough about the internal affairs of its members to be able to head off domestic conflicts before they explode into large-scale violence? Can it plausibly persuade a national government that it knows better what is good for a country than that government itself? Yes, it can and should work with civil society, but can it pay more attention to, the, to civil society than to the established government of the country? In, a, in an organisation which is essentially an association of sovereign states, those are not easy questions to answer. The best form of prevention, I think it's almost a cliché to say, is healthy and balanced economic and social development. And of course, that is also a very important part of the UN's work. Not the big money that you go, for which you go to the World Bank or um, other bilateral donors or regional uh, finance organizations, but uh, the advice and um, experimentation carried out by UNDP, which has postured itself as, the, uh, sorry, positioned itself as um, the friend and advisor of the developing countries. But that in turn poses a problem. Does it sometimes get too close to the governments of those countries and fail to be alert and to give warning when it sees things getting out of control? The development does have to be balanced and shared among the population of the country. And it's especially dangerous when there are those horizontal inequalities identified some years ago by Francis Stewart, where a particular group within a country, denominated by its religion or its ethnicity or its language, uh, is systematically excluded from the power and wealth that development brings with it. Particularly frequently, of course, that happens where there are discoveries of valuable national uh, and marketable um, and natural resources. Um, and also, there is a problem, I think, if you present everything as being conflict prevention, because if everything is, then somehow nothing is in any meaningful sense. And it's difficult to say that the only reason that you're trying to help a country achieve economic development is to prevent conflict. Fortunately, there are many very poor countries which are not in conflict. Um, and one doesn't want to suggest that you have to show signs of being about to start killing each other to merit international assistance. So I think one needs to move a bit down the causal chain, if you like, closer to the conflict itself, and think about those warning signals how one can spot them and how one can act. And this has been the subject of many initiatives in the United Nations within the last 20 years. Um, I would mention, for example, the special advisors 
which the Secretary General now has on the prevention of genocide and on the responsibility to protect, who actually share an office, a very small office in the Secretariat, and a small team, and they are looking out for these warning signals and trying to make sure that they're addressed before the worst happens. Um, and of course, the warning signals very often are large-scale violations of human rights. So the human rights machinery of the UN is extremely important. Um, the work of the Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights, a very small and disastrously underfunded part of the UN system. And um, I've been thinking about what we can ask of this new government that we've just surprised ourselves by electing uh, the day before yesterday. Um, I would love to think that it had been elected as a reward for sticking to the 0.7% of GDP for official development assistance. I fear that's rather unlikely. Um, but it does seem to me that when it has to defend itself against its own backbenchers very often um, for sticking to that, um, we could suggest that if some of that money were spent on strengthening the human rights work of the United Nations, that is something which probably people in this country would understand the value of and hopefully not see as just being handouts to um, feckless and unworthy uh, governments. And now the latest initiative um, started uh, a couple of years ago by the Secretary General after he received a damning report um, on the way that the UN had reacted to the crisis in Sri Lanka in 2009 is called Human Rights Upfront. And it is, uh, I think, a very serious effort to try and change the culture of all parts of the UN. I mean, this was something that has been talked about before. Uh, Kofi Annan said when he became Secretary General, uh, which is, goodness, very nearly 20 years ago already, um, that he was going to make human rights a cross-cutting issue. Um, but I think that the, the current administration is making a very serious effort to do that, um, to make people in all parts of the system, and particularly those not only in missions in UN parlance, which means the kind of operations that Hilda and her panel are, are looking into, the, the peacekeeping and peace-building missions, but all the countries where the UN has a presence, um, which very often is a presence mainly to do with economic development, but the people there uh, need to be aware of the fundamental, one of the fundamental purposes of the UN is to secure human rights and to be thinking about that and how they can do that all the time. Well, this struggle will go on, um, and I don't think it will ever be wholly successful. Um, so while we would like to think that the UN would eventually prevent wars from breaking out anywhere, <coughs> a great deal of its work will continue to be trying to bring them to an end, making peace, building and securing peace um, once um, the guns have stopped firing. Um, and a great deal of it, I'm afraid, will indeed also be humanitarian work, um, although, as I said, I don't think it would be as exclusively that as what Mark was suggesting last night. Um, I think we should remember that 
even though there is this uh, quasi-structural division among the permanent members of the Security Council, um, it still does actually work in many places. Uh, it may not work in Ukraine, but, as I'm sure Hilda can testify and will, in sub-Saharan Africa, there are many UN missions set up by uh, unanimous resolutions of the Security Council, which are saving many lives, as, even as we sit here. Um, and, and many of them have mandates which even refer explicitly to the responsibility to protect. So the idea that that decision taken in 2005 um, has sort of been completely negated by the somewhat unfortunate um, results of the intervention in Libya, I think doesn't really bear scrutiny. Um, of course, there are no wonderful um, sort of one-phrase solutions to any of these problems, um, but they can be used. <coughs> Remember that even during the Cold War, the superpowers were able to use resolutions of the Security Council on which they agreed to end wars in the Middle East and to prevent them from spreading. So I would suggest that even if we can't solve the conflict in Ukraine, much as I hope that we can, um, we still should keep on seeking for common ground <coughs> with, I mean, if, from the Western point of view, with Russia and China, but also with the emerging powers uh, and try and, um, I don't think we can despair uh, of being able to work together. Uh, I think the um, negotiations with Iran would be another example of that, where you have the five permanent members <coughs> plus Germany um, have been negotiating with Iran on the um, restraints to be imposed on its, on its nuclear program. Um, and I think one, one could go on. Um, there is plenty of room for improvement. I've been working in the last few months uh, for the Elders, um, an organisation which I expect most of you heard about, uh, which was started by Nelson Mandela um, about seven or eight years ago and consists of a few people who've served with distinction um, in international affairs uh, and are working together for the common good of humanity. Uh, Kofi Annan is currently the chair. It includes Jimmy Carter, Mary Robinson, Marty Artisari, Hina Jilani and a few others. And um, they wanted to make some suggestions for strengthening the United Nations in this area of peace and security on the occasion of the 70th anniversary. Um, maybe the agenda is too crowded <coughs> because, <coughs> of course, the main focus um, this year at the UN is on the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, but at the same time, when I think we watch the apparent impotence of the organisation to put an end to the appalling conflict in Syria, there's a general recognition that there is a need for improvement uh, in the um, peace and security area as well. The elders have put forward four suggestions, one of which I think is not, unfortunately, going to be adopted any time soon, which was instead of in encouraging the quest of four or five or six middle-rank countries for, to add themselves to the number of permanent members, there should be a status uh, whereby a country like that can be elected for a fixed term longer than two years, uh, which would be renewable. It seems like a much more democratic way of dealing with the problem. 
Um, but I don't sense uh, the sufficient feeling of urgency among the member states that they are going to be willing to, to accept that kind of compromise. Um, another is um, somewhat akin to the proposal put forward by the French, who want the permanent members to limit the use of the veto, uh, in particularly in cases where there are mass atrocity crimes going on. Uh, the elders suggest that the obligation certainly should be on a country thinking of casting a veto in such a situation that it should give very clear reasons and a very clear alternative proposal as a way of dealing with the situation. But the obligation is on both sides to keep working to find a common uh, approach rather than uh, just using the veto as a kind of alibi and an excuse to blame each other for, for what is happening. Um, the third one would be <coughs> to open the Security Council up more to the views of civil society, particularly in areas affected by conflict and therefore by the decisions of the Council. Um, those of you who are real UN buffs will know that there's something called the ARIA formula, um, which technically it's not an actual meeting of the Council, but the members of the Council meet and do hear from representatives of civil society. Um, the elders suggest that that could be made much stronger and there should be an obligation for the heads of missions to attend such meetings in person instead of sending along a third secretary, as is very often the case. And finally, and I think most urgently and relevantly in the present context, and um, the, we were talking a bit about this at dinner last night, next year uh, the uh, General Assembly will have to appoint a new Secretary-General. People forget, but that's what the Charter says. They, the General Assembly appoints the Secretary-General on the recommendation of the Security Council. In 1946, a very new organisation uh, needing to establish leadership quickly and to avoid getting caught up in the incipient conflict of the Cold War, the General Assembly said, just give us one name. That decision is still standing 70 years later. The elders think, and many other people think, it's high time to revisit it, to have an open and transparent process in which the peoples of the world will know who the candidates are uh, and will be able to exercise some influence on the choice. Um, unfortunately, as Mark was saying last night, it's a very depressing system at the moment where the main electors actually have an interest in a bad result. The um, five permanent members um, don't want uh, an effective and forceful Secretary-General. A couple of times when they got one, they didn't expect it. They didn't expect Dag Hammarskjöld to be a charismatic world figure. They thought he was a grey Swedish diplomat who wouldn't cause any trouble. They didn't expect anything much of Kofi Annan either. They thought he was a nice man who had risen noiselessly through the ranks of the Secretariat. Um, uh, it's really not good enough to leave the choice to them. The General Assembly has got to find its voice and assert itself. <clears throat> and I think that's quite enough for me. I'll happily hand over to Hilda. <laughs>